This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Cruel Empire of San Chan. Westerns 201. Pre-nuclear steel. And Ronaldo de Trochel Dumaine. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Rolier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relia's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Conrad Kinch asks Ken and Robin, what can Ken and Robin tell us about the cruel empire of Tsan Chan in the year 5000 AD? Robin, what can you tell me about the cruel empire of Tsan Chan? Because I know what I can tell you. Uh, well, the first thing I will tell you is that, of course, if we're going to riff a far future uh, space empire, uh, the fact that the uh, seems to be a Chinese name in there doesn't mean that we're going to do yellow peril in space, because that would be... Uh, wrong on a whole uh, bunch of fronts from uh, being uh, offensive to being hacky. Uh, so I'm going to specify that, in fact, the beings of the cruel empire of San Chan in the year 5000 AD do, in fact, have Chinese names, but they don't have recognizable Chinese culture because they are not, in fact, humans. They're not homo sapiens. They are former invaders of Earth who came to Earth as barbaric uh, space warriors, and like many barbarians uh, throughout history, throughout the galaxy, were acculturated by their stay among one of their uh, more highly cultured, civilized uh, conquests, and they took on many cultural traits of Earth, including uh, different names and uh, uh, other uh, things, like uh, re they had parliamentary democracy for a while, and uh, they uh, they still uh, watch uh, Seinfeld, uh, not not the current Seinfeld, but like a, a remake. And then as they moved on afterwards, they continued to acculturate and change, but they still have some aspects of Earth culture. Uh, they killed all the people. They you know, Homo sapiens is extinct. But our memes have, uh, to some extent, uh, drifted uh, into them. And so... Some of them retained their rapacious nature. In fact, the Empire of San Chan is a conscious, revanchist revival movement, reviving 
the old time barbarism of the original invaders from a thousand uh, years previous, but they are not recognizably us. They are a weird carbon copy of us. And other people of this same culture are opposed to them and want to uphold real civilization and fight uh, barbarism. So these guys are the bad guys. And we have our um, more cultured uh, heroes who remember uh, not only the good things about their own culture, but the good things about the various other cultures that they've absorbed into their own. Is that what you were going to tell me, Ken? Robin, you have fallen for the oldest trick in the book of the cruel empire of San Chen, said book having been revealed partially to us by none other than the great Howard Phillips Lovecraft, who revealed them first in the story Beyond the Wall of Sleep, in which the uh, flying star entity says that it, it, it moves back and forth uh, through Earth in time, behind beyond the wall of sleep. Next year, it says, I may be dwelling in the Egypt, which you call ancient, or in the cruel empire of San Chan, which is to come 3,000 years hence. And again, in um, uh, The Shadow Out of Time, uh, Wingate Peasley says, I talked with the mind of Yang Li, a philosopher from the cruel empire of San Chan, which is to come in 5,000 AD. Now, I, I, don't, note think, that I don't see how any of those contradict what I said. Neither of those contradict but they do imply that uh, the cruel empire of San Chen, the alien invaders who came to Earth, uh, wiped out humanity, uh, except for our Seinfeld uh, reruns and bits of our human cultures, did in fact stick around long enough to be pestered by the great race of Yith and by other Lovecraftian entities. These entities have to be at some level Earth-centric. Uh, w one assumes that their mimetic ties to Earth uh, bind them more tightly than we might expect, that they don't just take uh, their sand Channing and their Seinfeld off to some other star and ignore them, although that may be why the spirit being that fights on Al Gol is also following the Empire of San Chan. He does mention, you and I have drifted to the worlds that reel about Red Arcturus, so perhaps Arcturus is part of this uh, broad space empire of, Ch of San Chan. But the notion that the telepathic time-traveling entities of Lovecraft collect or connect with the cruel empire of San Chan, I think implies that among the memes that the aliens of San Chan accidentally awoke were the meme of Cthulhu. And that while San Chan may or may not have begun as a Lovecraftian race, there is within San Chan, certainly at the heart of the Cruel Empire, the heart of the bad guys, that this is what has allowed them to bring their revanchist, old-school, uh, barbarian ways back to the fore, is their rediscovery of the Lovecraftian meme, of the Lovecraftian memeplex. Right, because San Chan isn't the, the name of, isn't their name. This is the name of a new political movement in the year 5000 mm. that springs up. And it doesn't represent this entire uh, invading race. So no. uh, they uh, undoubtedly uh, found while they were on Earth all of this uh, Lovecraftian lore and have decided to reshape themselves because of what greater barbarian race could you have than something that gets together and consciously decides to emulate the destructive cosmic void of uh, of the old ones. Yes. So uh, there's two different ways that you can go at that. One is that they are... They believe in uh, a fictionalized uh, people created by uh, Lovecraft, but I think, of course, it's much uh, more fun to say that they have picked up the gauntlet and they have uh, basically become the uh, the Empire of San Chan. They were waiting for the real Empire of San Chan to materialize, 
And when for some reason it didn't, they realized that the empire of San Chan is us. It was within themselves all along. Exactly. Their, their hearts grew three sizes smaller that day. Exactly. And their shoes became uh, too tight. And also they developed allergies to shellfish. The, um, the, the notion of these aliens that they are, uh, that they travel in and are prisoners of, to an extent, mimetic space, informational space is interesting to me. That this is the thing that I think is they get to Earth, they arrive on Earth when our, our informational overload has reached such a point that we're basically like a Kimberly diamond mine of space that we've developed so many memes and so many concepts and so many, uh, subcultures and weird things on the internet. We're broadcasting them all out on the radios and the TVs and such. I'm so decadent that there's no culture. There's just warring subcultures. There's no culture. There's just endless cat videos and the, um, uh, and the, and the aliens who may or may not have been nameless at one time, or they may have taken the name of the previous, uh, rich culture that they had plundered from some other planet. Um, come and they are drawn to us like a bee is drawn to a pollenous flower and they've, uh, come on here. They've eradicated the humanity so that they could just harvest the memes without us poisoning them. And then in the course of harvesting them, they discovered and reified the Lovecraftian uh, meme plex, which as we know already has probably increased by a power of a hundred power of a, of a thousand, um, since the invention of the internet. And obviously in the future, when the people of San Chan arrive or the aliens of San Chan arrive of proto San Chan, pre San Chan, it will have been a major part of the, of the meme space. And the, and it will become a thing that, uh, the cruel empire can resurrect, uh, knowing that the other aliens are helplessly caught in its mimetic grip that because they've taken over Lovecraft, they have a, a place of power. Because uh, when they first get to Earth, because it's a, a planet of warring subcultures, the subculture that they find most interesting, that they most identify with, and which, uh, not coincidentally, is most willing to collaborate with them, turns out to be the subculture of people who believe that the Lovecraftian uh, mythos is real, that they, uh, by thinking it was fictional, worked their way into believing that it was real, and now uh, they you know, are real live true believing uh cthulhu cultists but it takes the uh, high technology of the uh so far unnamed uh, invading uh, species let's call them the the, uh, the dorak the dorak the, uh, the dorak had technology that to uh, us was indistinguishable from magic and therefore able to replicate the effects of uh lovecraftian uh, rituals and uh, so they used these cultists to help them uh colonize and and take over the world and after that, you know, horrible bloodbath, then they started to find the more fun, enjoyable, pleasant subcultures and parliamentary democracy and all of those other uh, good things that we uh, mentioned earlier. And it was that act of sort of binding and finding the most malignant possible meanplex on which to develop that sort of planted the seed that now the, the cruel empire uh, is uh, bringing back uh, into force. And so their ships are, are designed to look like Cthulhu creatures. Their great solar sails are like Cthulhu's wings. And uh, they've built uh, their uh, torpedoes to uh, uh, shoot out through tentacular uh, appendages on the, on the front of each uh, ship. So they are basically the, uh, you know, the invading Cthuloid uh, space empire that uh, our uh, heroes have to have to fight. Okay, who are our heroes? Are our heroes uh, the the remnant of the Dorak? Yes, that they, they are, are the other Dorak. They are the, the civilized the, the, that Dorak. are basically from the from the tiny remnant cults of cat videos and Seinfeld and um, uh, Afrofuturism and uh, 
uh, uh, well, anime? they were probably the majority until this virus, this, this meme virus went off, right? That you had this sort of sleeper society within the Dorak who were waiting for this San Chan to arrive, found out they didn't, and so they made their own San Chan. Right. And so, uh, but now they're on the, on the march. They're like, uh, suddenly exploded, like the return of the, uh, of the Empire in uh, Force Awakens. And okay. so now we, the, uh, the virtuous Dorak, uh, so so we're are, setting the story at the beginning of the rise of the Empire of San Chan, not at the flourishing of the of the Empire of San Chan, where only a few ragged rebel holdouts exist. Well, it's it's already uh you know captured a whole bunch of space. So we're the we're already on the run. They're they're on, on the, the rise run. and uh, okay. civilization is is uh, being threatened. Okay. Now, the, the 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 humans have all been exterminated. There's nothing, there's no, the resources on earth are just human, human memes, human info space, infrastructures. Um, do the Dorak have the ability to the surviving, do the good Dorak have the surviving ability to go out to other stars and try and find other meme plexes? That would be very difficult to play out in the game. I think in the game, um, once the Dorak are on earth, they're, they're stuck. They're, they're pinned here by the weight of our memetic uh, development. Uh, just, well, I wouldn't say we're stuck so much as that. They are surprised by the rise of San Chan. They don't remember this meme. Lovecraft? Mm-hmm. What? What? I, huh? What's this? We've got to go back to Earth, find the original sources of this meme, and find out what you can do to combat it. Right. Okay. So the so the the the, the San Chan are all over this uh, arm of the galaxy, yep. uh, hunting down the Dorak and destroying them with their mighty Lovecraftian powers. Because that it's the strongest meme there is. Right. And so we're going to, to the planet to get the MacGuffin that will allow us to, uh, you know, unlock and create our own uh, counterforce that will uh, rise in us. And our, our hearts will grow three sizes bigger and our shoes will become more comfortable. And then we'll be able to go and uh, have, uh, well, you know, we're looking for the elder sign. They must hunt down the blasphemous texts of Brian Lumley, the exactly. only thing that can destroy Lovecraft. I don't know. It seems legit to me. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. I think that uh, deploying Cthulhu's good twin Cthanid may be uh, like using the oxygen destroyer at the end of Godzilla. You said I got walked into a trap. If you try to uh, uh, recruit Cthanid, you're totally walking into a trap. Yeah. We're, we're so... Uh, multiply trapped is what we are. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I, I think that there's, there, there, there's some, there's some weight there. Uh, and it can be played either for horror or as, uh, or in, in Canadian style for humor. Um, I, I think that there's a lot well, it should be of humor that turns horrible. Uh, humor, oh, like the frighteners, right? You start out as your space, um, uh, memes and it's fun and you fly around and some of you are Hello Kitty and some of you are, or whatever else. And then all of a sudden someone has activated Cthulhu and now trouble has yeah, ensued. And then the, the cat video morphs and starts to devour you. Exactly. It becomes a, a cat from Saturn video, not a proper cat from Ulthar video. Well, so, so Conrad, that's your update. There you um, go. The uh, Empire of San Chan. I'm sure it's what you're expecting. Uh, Precisely, to say. I think. I'm pretty sure that Conrad is right now nodding and saying, well, when you're right, you're right. And since we are right, it's time to go right into a commercial and then right back out again to our following segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. 
not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. The whir of the projector, and uh, once more, the uh, sound of yippee-ki-yaying and uh, cattle drives and six-shooters going off tell us that we've returned to the Cinema Hut for a bit of a sequel. Uh, we've gotten a lot of great response uh, to our earlier Westerns 101 segment. We've heard from a bunch of people who have taken that and gone and... Uh, started acquainting themselves with those classic films that they hadn't seen before. But let's say that you, the listener, has either already watched all of those films that we mentioned in our previous segment, or... And good for you. Or we're acquainted with them already as, as a fellow cinemaphile. I thought we would now do uh, Westerns 201, or perhaps 415, I don't know. But uh, I thought we would go deep into our cinematic archives and dig up some choice cuts, some not necessarily central westerns, but the westerns that you start to go to as you uh, mine the genre ever deeper. So, uh, Ken, have you uh, uh, got a first item on the list to get us started out with? And it'll be fun to see how many uh, uh, 201 westerns we repeat, just as we, of course, repeated uh, and agreed on almost all of our 101 westerns. I'm going to name you a western that may actually, I'm not sure, but it may have been the first western I saw. Jeremiah Johnson, 1972, directed by Sidney Pollack. It starred Robert Redford. I saw this on the big screen uh, when it came out, so I would have been seven or eight. And it made a huge impression on me because it's about a guy who is, as far as my eight-year-old self could tell, fundamentally unkillable. And he goes around and he uh, just sort of monstrously kills a bunch of people and more and more people try and kill him. And it can't be done. And at the, uh, at the very end, there is a final showdown between, uh, uh, Johnson and his great, uh, Crow Indian enemy, uh, paints his shirt red, which 
I must have just built up in my in my little heart to uh, to unthinking heights. But I, I really strongly remember seeing Jeremiah Johnson in the theater, and it, it by that by definition almost it has to be the first western that I remember seeing. It's a terrific movie. Also, I've seen it as an adult, and it um it can it contained a lot of its childlike power for me because of the memory the strong uh, memory, uh, uh, that, that was left in it. But at the time, I, I just remember being amazed that anything like this could exist up on the big screen, which previously in my experience had pretty much been cartoons, uh, and, and teenagers having adventures. And so when, when something like that happened, it was like a door opened in my, in my brain. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a big fan. I think it's well worth seeing now. Like I say, it's Sidney Pollock. So it's worth that. John Milius wrote the script. So it's, Properly brutal and horrible, as it should be, being the story of a mountain man, the legendary uh, liver-eating Johnson. Um, I'm not sure that they ever used the words liver-eating in the movie, but they may have. Robin, did you see Jeremiah Johnson as an infant or as a grown person? Um, I have seen it and enjoyed it. Um, I uh, And it's sort of a part of the kind of a subgenre of kind of mountain men westerns. Mm-hmm. I thought I would also uh, look at ways that the western genre, as we discussed last time, has this sort of really basic elemental structure and uh you've articulated uh the uh theme that uh i think one can certainly uh definitely argue runs through all westerns but there are other westerns that sort of overlay a completely different perspective on top of the standard western chassis and so for example you've got your psychosexual western uh, and so I would point to uh, Johnny Guitar from 1954. <laughs> that was on my list. Uh, yeah. Uh, directed by Nicholas Ray. And uh, it's basically your gender inversion Western in which the uh, two gunfighters are women. Joan Crawford uh, plays a saloon owner named uh, Vienna. And Mercedes Cambridge uh, plays a, a rival who blames uh, her uh, friends and customers for a stagecoach robbery. And she's sort of the... Uh, representative of the um, cruel civilized order that's trying to crack down on the uh, uh, more uh, liberated order that is represented by Vienna, except there's a strong lesbian subtext where her jealousy over this minor character uh, is perhaps maybe not exactly why she hates and wants to kill uh, uh, Joan Crawford as Vienna. So uh, Nicholas Ray is another really interesting uh, director uh, known for Rebel Without a Cause and a bunch of other films. And this one is a, a great example of the sort of uh, fundamental sexual ambiguity underlying a lot of his uh, work. I had Johnny Guitar on my list, and I had it paired with the Fritz Lang Western Rancho Notorious, starring Marlena Dietrich as um, the owner and operator of the Chuckaluck, a sort of gambling den horse ranch uh, free space hideout. Uh, it, it's a it's a hive of scum and villainy, Robin. Is what it is. Exactly. And Marlena Dietrich Technicolor hive in of scum bright and Technicolor, which is weird because with Lang you expect lots of shadows and whatnot, but nope. Lang has has gone sun crazy yes. in this one. And and there's the and this one is a movie that is about everything that is the opposite of Western masculinity, because everyone is just completely unmanned by, by, by Marlena Dietrich. None of them are good people. They're all horrible criminals, basically. And there's sort of a minor key Othello that breaks out as everyone is horribly jealous of each other. And then there's a great deal of, um, uh, of gunplay at the end, as there should be at a proper Western. And the whole, the whole movie just is sort of weirdly off kilter and strange. First of all, it is unmistakably a Fritz Lang movie while simultaneously being 
pretty much nothing like any other Fritz Lang movie. It's just an insane experience on that level. And then to see Marlena Dietrich, um, uh, sort of kitted out as the, as the, as the ranch madam and burbling, uh, get away young man. is just a sort of a sensory delight, uh, all by itself. I, I think it's just crazily watchable and it subverts the Western in kind of the other direction rather than having a, a lesbian subtext. What it has is it directly inverts the, the um the 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 love triangle in which there's these two weak men who are dueling for the love of a strong woman which is not something you see very often right. in the and western of, and of course uh, Marlena Dietrich's character in that is the inspiration for Madeline Kahn's character in Blazing Saddles as well it should be as well it should be well let, let's stick with our uh strong women westerns and go to 40 Guns by Samuel Fuller from 1957 uh this is a film in which uh, Barbara is a, a uh, cattle Baroness. She again is a much stronger character than the uh, the gunfighter who comes to town and named uh, Gr- Griff Bennell. And now uh, he's no, no slouch. Uh, Sam uh, Fuller is uh, well known for both his really hard boiled uh, noir films and also his uh, tough war films uh, that are based on his own experiences in infantrymen in uh, World War II. And uh, there's also a streak of cynical newspaper man in there as well and there's uh without giving it away the big moment at the end where the bad guy is holding barbara stanwick uh, hostage uh and uh, it's time for the uh, the final throwdown is a, a great example of a hard-bitten cynical uh, samuel fuller so that's uh, 40 guns from 1957 i've seen 40 guns but i saw it uh, quite a long time ago, I do not remember it. I think as uh, in as high definition as as you do, but obviously it's uh, Sam Fuller, so it's great, and Barbara Stanwyck, so it's great. So go ahead and watch that. In the um, not quite the strong woman category, but I think that if you've watched it, you will know what I'm talking about. And if not, highly to watch it. The Professionals, starring Burt Lancaster, directed and written by Richard Brooks. And Burt Lancaster is one of the titular professionals who is hired by Ralph Bellamy to go rescue his wife, Claudia Cardinal, from Jack Palance, who is a former Mexican revolutionary named Jesus Raza. And they have to ride across the border and be illegally in Mexico and sort of kidnap this guy's kidnapped wife. So you're not sure, is this going to be Trojan War? It sort of begins as a men on a mission movie because we've got Lee Marvin uh, he's the, the, the gunfighter and Burt Lancaster is the, uh, dynamiter and Robert Ryan is the horse, uh, stealer, There's the a lot of man. stoic camaraderie on display. Lots of stoic. Woody, Woody Strode is a Indian scout, uh, apparently, although you couldn't really prove it, but, uh, they, they, then they go after, uh, Jack Palance. And of course, as with all men on the mission movies, certainly the ones, uh, that we, although this is a little early for the, uh, uh, shadowing Mr. Johnson to betray you, but it's 1966, but indeed, uh, Ralph Bellamy turns out to be no better than he should be. Claudia Cardinal has a backstory that we don't know. And of course, Jack Palance is Jack Palance. So it's a, it's a fine movie on a lot of levels. It's got a lot of, as you say, um, uh, uh, stern, unflinching male camaraderie going on. And, uh, Claudia Cardinal is just a delight to watch in anything that she's in. And I think this is one of the best parts she's ever had. She gets to do more in this than she usually gets to. She's not just sort of there to, to look good and, and chew her knuckles at the, at worrying about Lee Van Cleef. This is a real super strong part for her. And, um, I, although again, she's still sort of the MacGuffin, but she's a MacGuffin with a, with a personality and a role and a difference. So I, I recommend the professionals. I watch this relatively late in my Westerning career. I heard about it and I said, why have I not already watched this? And, 
bought the DVD and watched it, and that was a good idea both ways. Yeah, big, beautiful CinemaScope will look uh, great if you have a big TV. We've talked about a lot about revisionist westerns, but uh, maybe nobody is more revisionist than Robert Altman, who's a revisionist of every genre he did. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> That's the well, nice way to put uh, it. <laughs> Altman blows hot and cold because he was uh, a uh, let's put together a big cast of actors and feel our way through it. And so the, the movies of his that are not so great, and I have a sense that I like him a lot more than you do in general, oh, are, I think you're right. uh, are a shambles, but... Uh, the ones that work are magical. And I would uh, especially recommend McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, which is uh, sort of less about the theme of the Western than just about the texture of life uh, in a, a Western town where the snow is deep and life is hard. And uh, the uh, cinematography, the sort of foggy, d diffuse lighting sort of defines 70s cinematography. And then uh, there's also the uh, even looser and more directly anti-Western, Western nature of Buffalo Bill and the Indians, which uh, has Paul Newman uh, as uh, basically the people who begin to create the Western myth as uh, uh, a carnival act. And uh, I, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Willer, if you had to pick between those two, is definitely the one to pick. But uh, Yeah, I, I think the, that's the one that, that I would pick yeah. of the two. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoyed Buffalo Bill and the Indians as well. Uh, have you got another one on the pile? I have another one on the pile. Uh, in, in lieu of questioning the form of the Western, which, as you know, I consider to be a heretical act, um, I was thinking maybe we question the setting, because you can put Westerns other places than the West as long as it's still a Western. The classic example, of course, being Drums Along the Mohawk, an early John Ford film, which is, because it's so early, it's 1939, it's before Ford has sort of settled completely into his groove, but he's still a super great director, and it's a movie that is half sort of farming life and half battling the hated British and the Indians. And because it was made in 1939, the hated British could not be quite so there and quite so hated as they should have been. Uh, the poor Iroquois have to take a lot of the brunt of it, although the Iroquois were certainly very, very ill-tempered uh, to the settlers on uh, Iroquois land. Yeah, um, wonder, wonder why that was. One wonders why. But uh, either way, uh, this is a Western of classic uh, Indians versus settlers type fashion, except that it's in the 1770s. And it's it's historically... Well, it's relatively historically accurate, I would say. And, um, there's, uh, certainly there's hated Tories, uh, uh, to beat the band, to go along with your, your hated British. And, uh, it has a, a, a fine sort of a historical sweep to it that a lot of, uh, the sort of, um, cavalry westerns have as well. And so looking at it as the ancestor, both chronologically and cinematically of the cavalry western is, is a great way to watch it. Plus, if you happen to enjoy the characters, uh, Claudette Colbert, um, and Edna May Oliver as sort of the, uh, the, the, the leading women in the story, uh, around whom civilization is built, because that is how one does it, um, are both really terrific. Uh, Henry Fonda, it's an early Henry Fonda. He plays the hero. Very archetypal, uh, Fonda role. The, exactly. The man of fundamental decency. Right. And, and sort of the, the person who is, well, if you're going to take the Indian's land, who better to give it to than Henry Fonda? That's what I ask. So it's a, it's a really great movie. It's a John Ford and you can watch it sort of, by pulling it out of its cowboys uh, sort of backdrop, out of its Monument Valley backdrop, you can sort of see the John Ford Western being painted into it, uh, even in this relatively early period. Next up, I'm going to uh, see if I can stump the band here. 
Have right. you seen uh, Terror in a Texas Town? Terror in a Texas Town. This is from 1958. It's directed by Joseph H. Lewis, best known for the classic Outlaws on the Run film noir Gun Crazy. And it stars Sterling Hayden. Uh, its script is by uh, the then blacklisted Dalton Trumbo, so it's written under an alias. And it's uh, Hayden plays uh, the civilized uh, townsman who does not want to have to... Uh, uh, go to war against the outlaws, but guess what? In this kind of movie, eventually he has to go to war against some outlaws. The decent man has to stand up and pick up not the gun because Sterling Hayden is playing a Swedish immigrant and former whaler. So this is a movie about what happens when a man has to pick up the harpoon. And uh, let's just say, say no more. Terror in a Texas town. I have to say, I have, I have not seen, I have not seen this classic of the harpoon western genre and leave it at that uh i think i think it is uh both the the best western harpoon movie and the only western harpoon movie <laughs> so are you gonna stump me with one i i i was not aware that we were playing stump the band today. well we weren't except for terror we Texas weren't Town, except that but... you decided you wanted to um but i will say that uh further to the notion of and uh, Terror in a Texas Town is interesting because the bad guy, the 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 gun, the gunman, is in this case uh, hired by the evil developer who's trying to build out the the valley into more civilization, and it's the farmer who's holding off the developer. And that is a very common bit of the revisionist Western mythology: is that there is a sort of a set point for civilization, which is the small farmer, and that when real civilization in the form of the railroad in Once Upon a Time in the West or the um or the land baron or the um the the the, the sheep farmers who shut down the open range um in open range uh whoever they are big capital comes yeah. along then that's the real bad news it's, it's the individual versus capitalism individual versus capitalism as opposed to individual versus the west or individual versus uh owl hoots and that's one of the strong bits of um of of the uh of the revisionist uh canon or the revisionist uh, uh arsenal uh, there is a similarly in there is similarly intended film uh called the proposition that is directed by John Hillcoat who is possibly the director who has worked the best with sound editing and sound mixing of any director that I know of um it written by Nick Cave beloved musician it stars Guy Pierce uh, Ray Winston and it's set in Australia and it's um uh in the Australian Outback, it's an Australian Outback Western. And the bad guy is the, um, is the, uh, uh, is sort of the, uh, Ray Winston character who's sort of running the, the outpost. And he grabs, uh, one brother, uh, and gets ready to hang him and says, you'll be, uh, spared if you will go up and arrest your other brother who is, uh, who, who is hiding out from me. And so it's very much a man on a mission, but it's a dubious mission. So instead of, Will the guy betray you? It doesn't matter. He's already betrayed you. He's put you into a untenable moral position. And as Guy Pierce goes further and deeper into the outback, the untenableness of his position continues uh, to weigh upon him. And then, of course, everything turns as it turns. It becomes very, very terrific. And in this movie specifically, Hillcoat has the, the sound guy have the gun sound happen before you see the gun fire. So... You are always terrified by the gunplay because you didn't actually see the gun go off, but you still heard the gunshot. And it's just a matter of like a microsecond or even a, a tiny fragment of a second. But it's enough so that every gunfight in this movie is a million times stronger than a casual sort of gunfight is. Even in a great gunfight like the one at the end of Unforgiven, 
they don't play around with your timing sense, but Hillcoat does such a great job with the gunfights in the proposition that just for that, it should be mandatory watching for Western uh, directors. His handling of violence in that film is, is extremely visceral and shocking. And it's, it's yeah. not just the guns. It's there's a, no, yeah, there's other stuff. There's other, <laughs> other weaponry as well. Yeah. No harpoons though. Well, yes, like I said, the harpoon movie, there's only one. Um, well, I'm going to uh, land on one final sort of uh, thematic overlay over uh, over the Western, and that's The Shooting from 1966 by Monty Hellman, uh, who's perhaps best known for a uh, driving road movie uh, called uh, Two-Lane Blacktop. Uh, the Shooting is sort of a, a group of people journeying through the wilderness movie with uh, betrayal and uncertainty, and uh, uh, it's got Warren Oates, and uh, Jack Nicholson is a mysterious gunslinger who uh, shows up in the a young woman who's hired uh, them to get her from point A to point B isn't uh, necessarily explaining why that is. Uh, the thing that I remember about that is sort of the blowing of the wind and the sense of being uh, lost and sort of going out past the boundaries of the West into something that kind of questions uh, existence itself. And, uh, you know, if if Antonioni had uh, made a Western and then cut 20 minutes out of it, uh, you would have the shooting by Monty Hellman. <laughs> have you got one last one to put in the hopper? I don't have, I don't have a last one that's along the track that we have been following, sadly. But I would say that, uh, if you go back and you watch, uh, Fort Apache, which is really probably a, a 101 Western, um, that will be your classic cavalry Western, um, exactly of the sort that you, that, that you want to see. Yes. Um, that is, uh, John Wayne. As the, um, uh, as sort of the heroic, uh, scout, um, or Captain Kirby York. He's, um, he's supposed to run Fort Apache. Uh, there's great trouble with, with the Apache running around. And his job is to bring civilization on the land and no questioning. Henry Fonda shows up and takes over the fort, basically. And so it's Henry Fonda versus John Wayne. And John Wayne, you'll be excited and surprised to know, is on the side of the Indians. He's like, look, we're here stealing their land. No wonder they're steamed. Just treat them fairly and you won't have any problems. And Henry Fonda is very much by the book. And he's not like evil. He's not like exterminate all the Indians. But he's like, this is my job and I have to do my job exactly as laid down. And so John Wayne's character becomes the voice of reason and tolerance in uh, a John Ford Western, which... All by itself is reason to watch it. Then, of course, uh, John Ford does a terrific job with the with the combat scenes. There's, of course, a great battle against the Indians because uh, Henry Fonda leads everyone into trouble. And uh, at the at, at the at the end of the movie, uh, everyone agrees that perhaps John Wayne was right all along. But it's a it's a it's a great movie to watch, and it sort of sets the pattern for a lot of the uh, cavalry westerns that are another. I think maybe not as explored genre as the martial Western or the gunfighter Western. Right. Cause they sort of blend the war film with the Western. Right. Um, that's actually part of the cavalry trilogy. Um, all of which are masterpieces. So yes. So basically Western two fifteen is watch all the John Ford movies that we haven't mentioned. Watch everything by John Ford and then come back to us. Yep. Uh, well on, on that uh, note, that seems as good a conclusion as any. So let's uh, move through the wilderness, uh, past the tumbleweeds through uh, this important commercial message and on to our next segment and or hut.
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like Todd W. Olson, Bill Sundwall, Fred Kish, John Kingdon, and Lewis R. Evans. Support our Not Entirely Cruel Empire by backing us at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. The arcing of Van de Graaff generators, the beeping of a mysterious panel on the wall, and the foaming of beakers tell us we've entered the world of fun with science. And Patreon backer Anti-Eloma says, in the fun with science category, aside from building Geiger counters and scientific apparati, what use could one have for pre-nuclear steel, the main source of which he helpfully supplies, is the German World War I fleet scuttled at Scapa Flow. Robin, um, tell us about pre-nuclear steel, because as I understand it, nuclear is forever. Right. So uh, pre-nuclear steel is also known as low background steel, and that may uh, help you intuit what this is all about, is that basically any steel forged after the advent of atomic uh, explosions and testing in '45. Uh, anywhere in the world has a small amount of radiation trace in it and is therefore uh, easily distinguishable from uh, pre-nuclear steel or steel that was forged before then. And therefore, uh, as the question suggests, you can't use that for Geiger counters or other scientific uh, instrumentation where the uh, you're either trying to measure radiation or the presence of uh, background radiation uh, would somehow throw off your instrumentation. And this is decreasing over time. If you, you can kind of date, uh, steel from basically up from 45 to 63, the trace elements increase and increase and increase. And then after the nuclear test ban treaty in 63, they start to significantly decrease, but have not yet gone to zero. And so this means if you want to make a Geiger counter or, uh, another instrument that depends on not being slightly radioactive, you have to find steel that was forged before then. And as the question also suggests, uh, the main source of that, or the most exciting source of that at any rate, uh, is the German uh, naval fleet that was scuttled at Scapa Flow. And Ken, this is also a kind of an interesting uh, story that we might use partially for the purpose of our uh, riffing. So why don't you tell uh, the listeners what Admiral Ludwig von Reuter did 
uh, at uh, Scapa Flow in Scotland. Okay, this is, uh, take your minds back, if you will, to 1918, in uh, the end of World War I, the uh, armistice has happened, the German fleet has been interned at the naval base at Scapa Flow in Scotland while they wait to determine what's going to happen to Germany and the world at large. And the, the Kriegsmarine are all hanging around being all Kriegsmarine-y, uh, probably mutinous and communist, because lots of them were. The admirals are beginning to lose control over the situation, and Admiral Ludwig von Reuter is concerned that the German high seas fleet, which has basically bankrupted the empire and helped cause the damn war, will be given over to the hated British, and all of their work will have been for nothing, as might have occurred to him in 1914, as opposed to 1918, but whatever. He's an admiral, not a geostrategist. Ad- so, Ad- admirals like boats. Admirals they want to like have boats. as many boats it's, around them as possible. It's one of their, it's one of their uh, cyclims. Yeah. So anyway, uh, like or not like the boat, he knows he does not want to see his beloved uh, boats under the flag of the hated British, and so he orders his men to scuttle the fleet and sink it at anchor there in Scapa Flow. The British Navy, with their customary uh, crack uh, efficiency are able to prevent almost a fifth of the ships from sinking themselves, <laughs> perhaps not having been trained to stop the German fleet from sinking. They, they did everything backwards for a bit. And so the, most of the ships, 52 of the, of the 70 odd ships there at the harbor sank to the bottom of Scapa Flow where they rest today, except every now and again, someone, I guess, comes down and, and drags up their steel and, and turns it into a Geiger counter. Right. Uh, presumably with some intermediary steps. Yeah, right. No, it, it just, they wave the steel around and it detects things. That's yeah. how Geiger counters work. Exactly. It's called science, Robin. It's, it's called fun with science. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, uh, the question before us is uh, not why you would do that, which we have an answer for, but what else that we uh, might not have in the official record books, but of course are in the eleptonic record books to whom we have access, uh, what uh, weird, secret, or gameable things would we be doing with uh, pre-nuclear steel. So um, my first thought is that, uh, you know, genre being what it is, that we need uh, pre-nuclear steel in order to forge into weapons uh, because our uh, mysterious enemy that we are facing is immune to stab wounds or uh, uh, bullet wounds or what have you from any um, steel or metal that has traces of radiation in it. So obviously they are uh, alien beings. Uh, do we want to go with uh, outer space aliens or with extra dimensional aliens? I think they're extra dimensional. Outer space aliens wouldn't give a care about radiation one way or the other, but extra dimensional aliens could come from a, a land where all of the various counts uh, are slightly different. And so something being non-radioactive would be more important to them in the stabbing uh, range than it would be if they're simply from uh, Arcturus or something. Right. And so if they're extra dimensional, that increases the chances, therefore, that they are uh, the aliens among us style aliens who are capable of uh, hiding among our population and that uh, the player characters in this campaign must uh, therefore use uh, different weapons on them. And the thing is, is that if you stab someone with uh, a regular uh, bit of steel that was forged after 1945. Or that was forged before, but was kept on the wall of a Scottish castle and so got full of strontium-90 anyway. Right. You know, if you stab them with that, you know they're not an alien if the knife goes in. Now, that's perhaps not the most satisfying test, because then you have (laughs) to, you know, if it turns out they're not an alien, then you're sort of obligated to take them to the ER. 
uh, which mm-hmm. is sort of a drag. But the other side of things is that, uh, because the thing is, if, if you've got pre-nuclear steel, of course, that will go in just as well into uh, one of us as into one of the aliens. So it doesn't prove anything, but you need it in order to uh, take down the aliens. Right. Another possibility is that you can you need the pre-nuclear steel to build time machines with. Right, right? because of course... If anything is going to be sensitive to tiny bits of radiation, it will be the chroniton uh, emitters and uh, receivers on your on your time machine. So I suspect that you need to be going down and uh, rescuing the Scapa Flow fleet and maybe some of the decommissioned United States World War One fleet that got sank before World War II anyway. Uh, you know, there's lots of sunken ships. You're, you're not restricted to Scapa Flow. If you are restricted to Scapa Flow, maybe it's not the pre-nuclearization that's important, but the fact that it was sunk in a magical Pictish stone circle, and that's what makes it magic. And it's not the pre-nuclearization. Right, because otherwise that just raises the question of if you have a time machine, right. get sourcing pre-nuclear steel is not becomes much simpler. Well, yeah. you know, it's, it's that first time machine that's the doozy. Right. But once you got that, you're covered. You're covered. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you're covered assuming you want to go to all the trouble of establishing a, a secret steel manufactory in the wilds of nowhere to pound things into steel. Although that could explain how Damascus steel got invented. Right. Because no one really knows how they suddenly sort of make this quantum leap in steel quality based on a relatively understood technology at the time. Uh, we're not entirely certain whether it was a matter of a uh, way in which the steel was uh, um, alloyed or whether it was simply the matter of being patient enough to fold it over and over and over when it's still in its puffy semi-liquid state. What is the nature that makes Damascus steel better than other steel? It might have just been time travel steel. That that's the, the they're outside Damascus in the fifth century AD or whenever it was. Uh, that's when the, the first time machine lands, they send natives out to dig up iron ore. They bring it in. They say, now make steel. Here's the recipe. Stop asking me a lot of questions. I have such a hangover. Um, uh, and I foolishly gone to an era before vodka. Um, not that that's what time travelers say, but, uh, but th- that's how Damascus steel is caused. And we've, we've solved two mysteries at once. Right. Well, as long as we're in the realm of, uh, science fiction, make up machines. Uh, the other possibility is that we can only get a faster than light drive to work if we have pre-nuclear steel. Mm. And that, uh, then posits that the number of, uh, faster than light engines is going to be finite that you can only have uh, as many of them as, as you can dredge up from the Scapa flow and other sunken ships. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what does that do to our science fiction universe if faster than light uh, ships exist, but are extremely rare? Yeah. If maybe it takes one pre-nuclear capital ship to create one faster than light ship, which would be a fun, you know, metric that you basically have to say, all right, the Prince Regent Lutpold um, is going to be turned into a ship. Although, of course, in stupid real history, plenty of these ships were dredged up well before 1945 and um, uh, the steel was recovered and sold on its way to something else. So there's lots of other things that the Scapa flow story just doesn't hold water, frankly, but um, you can, you can certainly find plenty of, of, of sunken ships. Maybe that can be your activity as you set it up. And if it's one capital ship per battleship or per uh, starship, that means that the number of starships is in, what do I want to say? Maybe the low hundreds, you know, between one and 200 starships and that's it. And uh, if, do the Russians have more because more of their 
uh, ships got sunk into the icy waters of the Arctic Ocean uh, than than we do because more of our ships got pulled up and efficiently uh, recombined into proper steel. It, it, does Britain become a star power because whatever is left at the bottom of Scapa Flow is the largest single collection of these ships? What's uh, what what's the what's the effect geopolitically on Earth of given countries having access to the absolutely irreplaceable raw material that makes a starship. And there might indeed be a big political movement based around the idea of don't go anywhere in those faster than light ships, because eventually you're going to run into another culture. That other spacefaring culture may well be hostile and they may think of an opportunity uh, has arisen if they've found that uh, we can fly, but we only have 200 ships. That seems to make us a pretty good target. Let's not come to the attention of other spacefaring peoples because we're always going to be limited in this way. And uh, we have no reason to assume that uh, the other spacefaring uh, peoples uh, will. Or you might have the, you know, the idea is you are going to, sp- to space. The first thing you want to find is planets with pre-nuclear uh, iron ore. Right. Um, yeah, that, that, again, you're, you begin to get the question of, it can't be asteroids because they're full of cosmic rays, right? Right. And that cuts out the super easiest way to get iron. So maybe you go to Mars and you could dig down underneath the, the, uh, sort of the surface regolith of Mars. And in theory, Mars is basically made of iron. Um, once you can get to Mars, you can dig up a million billion tons of pre-nuclear iron and spoil our fun again. So perhaps... It has to be a specific isotope or some sort of way in which the Mars doesn't work and asteroids don't work because of cosmic rays. Maybe it has to be on a planet with a thick enough atmosphere that it didn't uh, accumulate too many uh, neutrinos or something or or gamma radiation, something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how you write the rules such that literally the first water planet you find doesn't undo all of your fun. Well, maybe that's, that's just the stage we're at, right? Yeah. Is that we have found the first water planet. Uh, we are starting to uh, build a shipyard there and the action occurs on the shipyard. And then, uh Oh, we don't have enough ships yet. And guess what? We've made contact. Mm-hmm. And so that's your, uh, your big diplomatic uh, game in which you are trying to uh, establish an accord with this new culture before they find out how, little along you are in the process of building your space fleet. Right. That it, that becomes your ticking clock is that if we can keep the aliens at bay, at war with each other, whatever else, long enough for this new shipyard to come up, then we can finally have enough things. But of course, if the aliens figure out what we're doing, all they have to do is just drop one A-bomb into the atmosphere of our world and they ruin our shipyard forever. Right. Yes. So we really have to be fighting the aliens out where they live, not down here where we live. I will point out the Peru also becomes a space power because their uh, Navy during the War of the Pacific was uh, sunk, was scuttled in the port of Calau, which is the port of Lima. And so they would have uh, three starships. So good for you, Peru. Right. And uh, that can be your way to, uh, you know, various cultures can uh, bootstrap their way into the uh, uh, world alliance that way. And uh, there, there we go. So. Uh, I think we've found at least three things to do with uh, pre-nuclear steel and therefore can pronounce this segment 100% scientifically valid and move on to the next one.
When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. You may notice that as you uh, creak your way up a familiar set of worn wooden stairs and... Uh, knock the cobweb off of your shoe, that you are in proximity to the parlor in which dwells our friend, the Consulting Occultist. And this time, the Consulting Occultist is all ready to tell us about a French sorcerer who was uh, burned at the stake uh, around 1579. Uh, King Charles IX uh, ordered his immolation, and uh, his name is Ronaldo de Trois-Echelles du Maine, or Trois-Echelles, as he is more often abbreviated. So, uh, Ken, where does his story begin? We know where it ends. Where does it start? Um, well, we don't know, because uh, while he is well-known for a witch, he is not well-known for a uh, age-of-reason Frenchman, or I guess Renaissance Frenchman. We're still not quite at the age of reason, because people are still being burned alive for being witches. We know that he was a court personality, in uh, the court of Charles the Ninth, um, he has been referred to as a clergyman. Uh, if he could read and write, that would be plenty of reason to refer to him as a clergyman. It's also how most people learn to read and write, even as late as the 16th. So perhaps he was at some point a, a, a rural curate who decided rural curating was not for him. And he wanted to go to the big city and become a juggler or necromancer or a stage magician. <laughs> we all don't know. The world is my oyster. Um, he is, uh, quite possibly was just kept around to entertain Catherine de Medici, uh, or to generally, um, uh, provide an amusement sort of not quite in the John D level of trusted astrologer who we nonetheless don't bring to court that often, but more along the lines of, well, we're a proper court. We should have a wizard. How about you, Tra Achelle? And then as long as, um, he sort of does his job and does not start playing the, the devil angle too much, then it's probably not a bad deal. At some point though, he does start alluding and not in a sexy fun way to being in league with, uh, demonic powers. And so that sort of gets, one assumes the attention of whatever enemies the court juggler makes, uh, the court, um, saw musical saw player, maybe, um, is behind this and he gets, uh, sentenced for, uh, uh, witchcraft, and sentenced to hang, and Charles the Ninth said, "Well, if you um, promise to live a good and Christian life from now on, we won't hang you." And Trashell said, "Oh, right, yeah, I'm going to do right. that." And, and so, and by the way, do you know of any other witches? Yes. Well, that doesn't happen the first time. That happens the second time uh -huh. because he uh, continues to do his sort of magical whatnot, and then people would come up and they would say, "Well, I, I'll pay you for this magical whatnot." 
but only if it's got demon power in it, because one assumes that that's like the, you know, um, rich Corinthian leather of, of sorcery back in the 16th is I want to know that demons were involved in this because otherwise this love potion might as well be a collation of herbs and poisons. Yes. Yeah, so you're either a demonologist or a charlatan <laughs> or a charlatan. And only one of those is someone I want to pay money for amulet. Exactly. To. But also only one of those does not get burned at the stake. And this time he is dragged once more before the uh, French parliament. He attempts to flip on his witch confederates while he is awaiting execution on the theory that perhaps he will be uh, forgiven for grassing on the other uh, uh, witches. And at some point he begins to, one assumes regardless of how many witches there were in France in 1571, it was not 30,000, which is the total number that chroniclers eventually have pieced together that he uh, tried to inform on at one point or another. We know that there were at least 1,200 named ones, and then he probably said, oh, and everyone involved with this abbey is a witch, and everyone over here is committing sorcery. Right. And in this town, clearly everyone there is a witch. Right. Coincidentally, it's the town where I was uh, treated rudely mm -hmm. because I was a rival witch. Because they didn't like the, the juggling. And he uh, would uh, sort of sex up the story by describing in lurid detail all the satanry that was being gotten up to. Uh, one assumes that part of this is that there were people who were opposed to Charles IX and Catherine de Medici. Catherine de Medici, of course, the famous patroness of Nostradamus, uh, Nostradamus, um, is a uh, target for people who don't like bossy Italian ladies running your country, which I think was probably most of France by the by the tail end of it, and certainly by the Huguenots and other Protestants who have got bones to pick with Catherine de Medici well before the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And so the way that you accuse the king of being a bad king is not to say Charles the Ninth is a bad king. What you say is Charles the Ninth's buddy is a horrible de demonist sorcerer and look at all these demons that he's found in the court of Charles the ninth. So it's, it's sort of like he's, he's providing evidence for the corruption and awfulness of French society under Charles the ninth. So the bigger deal you make out of Trois Echelles, the more embarrassed Charles and Catherine de Medici become. And at some point though, if you're embarrassing the people who have the ability to order you burned alive, they're going to start doing that. And that is indeed what happened uh, at the Place de Greve, and he was set on fire uh, in the presence of uh, three marshals of France, and uh, that did not help. <laughs> the, the fact of three marshals of France uh, being there was more of a make sure he doesn't do any magic to get out of it, I think. Right. Well, you, yes, you have to have a, official witnesses, and uh, I guess they were to spring into action if any demons came out of him. Right. So that is... Uh, not a story with a lot of detail in it, just because there's there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of historical record there. So how do we turn that into something? What uh, what sort of scenario or story can we wrap around uh, Trois Shells? Well, uh, to begin with, we have uh, Charles the Ninth dying of tuberculosis, not three years later. So we've got a demon curse that someone has put on Charles the Ninth, and whether it is. Um, Trashell saying, well, you burn me at the stake. I'm going to get you from beyond the grave or whether it's all the witches and demons that did not get persecuted by Charles the ninth and, uh, Catherine de Medici, uh, rising up and demonifying France. Because if you remember right after this, you begin the wars of religion, you begin the, the Fronde, the great peasant rebellion, you begin the series of werewolf sightings all across France in the 1580s and nineties. Uh, France basically sort of becomes the 
preview, the off-Broadway preview of the Thirty Years' War uh, for about the next uh, 10 or 12, uh, 15, 20 years until they sort of sort things out with uh, uh, the, the Bourbons and, and Henry. So this is uh, when the wheels start to come off. Yes, this is when the wheels start to come off. And so what you can do with the Trochel in a, in a gaming group, I think the, the first thing you have to do is say, yes, there's a conspiracy of, of monstrous demons and, and witches and whatnot out in France, because if there isn't, you know, you, you sort of are, you, you're sort of cut yourself off there. So despite the fact that conspiracies of, of witches are pretty much ahistorical, if they're going to happen anywhere, let's say that they happen in France. And let's say that Trochel does in fact have the, the 411 on these guys and does in fact try and uh, turn them over. And the reason that he's burned at the stake is not as a method of slowing down criticism of the king, but to attempt to shut him up before he reveals the real power behind the witches. And we don't know who it is, but uh, hint, it's Catherine de Medici. Right. And it's convenient to pick him as the uh, as our bad guy, because that uh, allows us to distance ourselves from the uh, you know real history of uh, the witch trials as a uh, means of destroying women. Right. Uh, so well, you know, destroying a lot of people. Uh, right. The, the, the number of people executed in France for witchcraft was pretty gender balanced. Well, there you go. That's that's the one we want to f- focus on. Yeah. Then, right. You know. Also, there's a lot of French witch records because uh, Henri Michelet. I think it's Henri Michelet, the historian, the 19th century historian, while uh, attempting to indict the ancien regime of France for all of its sins, decided to add credulous mopery to that indictment and listed a bunch of witchcraft trials, not because Michelet believed in witches, but because Michelet believed that people who believed in witches should not be running France. And that was his sort of anti-clerical argument uh, as a uh, historian. I, I think he makes a sound point. No, I'm, I'm, I believe Except that people who believe in witches shouldn't run universe. France either. But the larger right. point being, because of Michelet's, uh, uh, what shall I say, enthusiastic research into the topic, we've got a lot of French witches that we can look up. So are there others that uh, uh, spring to mind as belonging to the same category of Trois-Rochel, but not warranting their own separate future segments? I, I don't know that there's any specific given case. I think that if you do any sort of you know deep dive into the material, like I say, you've got a ton of werewolf sightings. So I would start with the werewolves. Um, in, uh, France and sort of work backwards from there because that seems to me to be clear cases uh, of ongoing de- demonetry. And you probably can't get all the way to the Beast of Gavodan, which have we done the Beast of Gavodan? I don't think we have. Well, we'll do the Beast. That's worth its own thing. But, um, you can certainly put werewolves in the Gavodan and uh, foreshadow the Beast. And if you're running a, a, a game that is hopping around and you can come back and say, Oh, we're back in the Gavodan. That was terrible. Well, it's even worse. But, uh, there was, um, there was a lot of, uh, of, of werewolf cases, uh, in France. Uh, they, they, it was as big a deal in France as vampires were in the Balkans, uh, a hundred years later. So right. tons of, tons of cases that you can dig into. And then the other thing you have in France, of course, is, uh, as I believe I mentioned in, uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, you have the whole Averroin mythos of Clark Ashton Smith. So you have Sathagwa cults and weird giant uh, animate golems made out of bricks and whatnot, and all kinds of great stuff that you can deep dive for and pull up into your game. And uh, it might be interesting, actually, to do the uh, do a fake it with the witches and uh, have witchcraft be unreal, but the werewolves are real. So it may be that the werewolves are uh, encouraging uh, witch hysteria in order as a sort of a, a smokescreen for their own activities. Or perhaps witchcraft is one of the only ways that you can stop werewolves. 
right? The, all the witches are good witches like uh, Willow in Buffy. And it's only through the, the, the powers of, of good witches in Diana, the, the goddess of the hunt that you can find werewolves in the first place. And that's why they're trying to get all the witches right. killed. So in, in that version there, they're real, but they're not evil witches who deserve persecution. Well, but they are maybe the, one or two are, obviously. You want to right, be able course, to change it but up. In but general, by and large, the witches are, are perfectly nice ladies who worship uh, Diana right. uh, and, and and don't make any kind of trouble. They're, they're not demon-powered. They're just uh, straight-up pagans. Mm-hmm. And so the werewolves are planning to uh, do all the things that, you know, bring the previously mentioned uh, wheels coming off in France about. And so they have to get rid of the witches... Uh, before they can make their move. Right. So that can be your, uh, your premise that, uh, still allows you to depict, uh, witch persecution as a bad and terrible idea, but at the same time also have, uh, fantasy elements in play at the same time. And you can have the set, the sort of, well, we need these powers to persecute witches to kill werewolves because otherwise, um, you get tried. And in France, actually, if you wound up going before the regular courts, you were super likely to get off for witchcraft. The regular courts really didn't want to find anyone guilty of witchcraft. They hated that. I assume there was a lot of paperwork and you had to go and, and let the church, you know, poke its nose into your business and other things. But if you yeah, can get it, tried it before kept the, the werewolf population right, under control, right. it makes perfect sense. But, but if you could get tried before the parliament of Paris, I think that they may have convicted like 3% of the people uh, for witchcraft that, that came up before them. So you were, you were super easy. There were a, a, the ninth circuit of, of where, of, of witchcraft trials. Um, uh, bending over backwards for the defendant. So it's basically a moving violation. It was a, yeah, it was like, yeah, d- d- 10 groats, don't do it again type stuff. But, uh, the, if you've got the, um, the werewolves are out there, you know, sneaking around plotting to destroy France, you need the powers granted by the Anti-Witchcraft Act of 1541 to hunt them down in the same way that, you know, the, you know, the, the, your Jack Bowers are like, well, it, this is all awful, this uh, warrantless searching, but we, and torturing, but we have to stop these terrorists from doing their terrorist thing. And so you can have a lovely, uh, modern day resonance with your werewolf hunting. Right. And of course, that suggests that there have to be werewolves in the royal court, uh, pushing the anti witch agenda. Right. Again, Catherine and Medici. There you go. Yep. Uh, well, I think we've, uh, uh, woven, uh, suggested but thin thread, uh, on itself and made a thicker thread, uh, which is a sure sign that it's time to congratulate ourselves for yet another podcast and head on out the audio door. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Samwise Kreider. Stuart Robertson. Pedro Godero. Aaron Sapp. And Jeremiah Genest. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>